Hear the reading of God's word from Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw, all, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also... Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Brought my props. Is that okay? <clears throat> Thank you, Emily, for reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4 for us. That's our text today, if you didn't pick that up. Seven billion, it's about the number of people who there are in the world today. I dare you to count them all. You start now, I don't know how long it would take you. You could probably finish by the end of the sermon. That was a joke. Some of you are really worried now. You meet and cross paths with brand new people you've never met every single day. Like, even if you stay at home, you might get that friend request on Facebook from that person you've never met, and that's a new person, and, and all of a sudden, there's a new social interaction. And, and, and sometimes, we meet people, and isn't this true? Isn't this great when this happens in life? You meet somebody, and automatically, you're just like, you hit it off. You just, there's something about this other person's way of living, something in them that you look at, and it, it is like, their life is discernibly righteous. You like hanging out with this person. They have they have what we often call balance. Do you know what I mean when I say balance? Like someone has a life that just seems to be in balance. But then sometimes, isn't this also true that you meet somebody and, um, 
They're totally brand new to you, and, and you meet them, and it doesn't take long to realize their life is out of balance. Like, their life is just marked by what they lack. They lack a job. They lack money. They lack basic hygiene. Mostly, they lack a filter, and so you know that they lack a spouse, or they lack this, or they lack that, and um, you just walk away from those meetings, and you're like... What a mess, like out of balance, wrong priorities. Okay, you guys are all so righteous, you've never done this before. But this is how I approach life. Most of us feel like we are teetering on the balance beam of life, so to speak. And it can be really uh, discouraging sometimes as we kind of try and find our balance through life. And around us, we look around and sometimes you see people who are doing handstands and cartwheels on the balance beam of life. And you're like, you're, you're, this is so good for you. And then you look around and there's a lot of people tripping and falling off the balance beam. And you're like, I don't want to be like that. And while we believe that God created all people with inherent dignity and worth, of the 7 billion people who are living in the world, we have to recognize that not everyone is living life with equal priorities. Not everybody is living in, in the same way. There are some people out there who actually, they, they would make fantastic friends. But there are also, isn't this true? There's, true? There's some people who you're just like, the best thing for me to do with you is to put some distance between us. Like, you, you, you're a mess. And we see that. Our, our culture of tolerance wants us to say that all things are becoming equal. That's the message that we hear all the time. All things are becoming equal. Uh, but today in, Sol- in, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon's going to actually tell us, hey, hey, all things being equal, there is a way to live that is better than another way. I like to think about it in terms of sort of like a scale. That if you, you've got a basic scale, you know how a scale works, right? Good. Now, this is not a scale that some of you guys work at to shed pounds on. This is a scale that would have been used uh, to measure things, right? And, and to place something on the scale and, and then to, 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 to see it tip the scales in one way or another. And Solomon's going to tell us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that actually wise people live their lives in a way where, where all things being equal, one way is better than the other. That there's gravity and weight to a healthy life. That doesn't exist in the unbalanced life. I don't normally do this, but I want to give you my big idea right from the beginning, and then we're going to go through the text. Is that okay? Here's the big idea for today. Wise people achieve balance disproportionately. Wise people achieve balance in life disproportionately, which seems a little odd to us because if we look at a scale, we, we like to think, you know, balance means that this, this thing's hitting the center mark spot on. But what God's word is going to show us is that the balanced life actually exists when we tip the scales. The Holy Spirit, through Solomon, gives us four areas of life where we need to draw some sort of comparison. Four times in this passage in Ecclesiastes, you're going to see the word better come up. And Solomon is going to show us that there is a better way to live. And for us, the question is, of the seven billion people in the world, am I someone who lives with a godly balance? Am I one of those people who, who lives with priorities the way that God would have me live them? 
we're turning a corner in Ecclesiastes to some very practical application here. And the balanced life, it's achieved by evaluating the worth of actions and motives and priorities and disproportionately favoring one over the other. And so as we read this, I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind. Be evaluating and saying, God, am I, am I lax in this area? Am I balanced in this area? How, how do I make sure that I'm one of these people that has your priorities? And, and I want us to listen to Solomon today. Because Solomon sees the world pretty much the same way we see our world today, too. Like, I think we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes and go, wow, Solomon, that could have been our journals today. Like, you're reading our newspapers, you're reading our mail, and it's very practical for us. And so, for starters, you all ready to get into this? Just kind of touch the person next to you and say, we're going to get balanced. Go ahead. Verses 1 through 3 say this. Solomon says, again, I saw, under the, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. I've been doing this thing with my daughter where I'm trying to teach her, like, good and right and wrong, and things that are good and what, what um, is a good thing, what's a bad thing. And she just looks at me sometimes after I say something, and she'll be like, Daddy, that's not good. And in like this sweet, innocent way, you see like the wisdom of a two-year-old come out. I interject her thoughts into here too as I see, behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. That's not good. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now this is a remarkable statement for a king to make. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through 3, Solomon has been considering the futility of the world from sort of like this ivory tower. But here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he actually gets down on the ground, he goes to the courtroom, and he sits down in his own judicial system. And he looks at the proceedings that are taking place. What is happening on the ground in my kingdom? This is kind of like an episode of Undercover Boss in the Bible. Where he's going to scope out how are things running? How, are, how is it going? And what he finds is that there's no balance in justice. And that in the world, what he has, the, the, even the best intended systems find the innocent being oppressed. Find People who have done nothing wrong being run over by the system. He looks at the scales of justice and where obviously the scales of justice must be equal. They must be balanced. The punishment should fit the crime. All should be accountable to the law. There should be innocence until proven guilty. Solomon looks at the scales of balance and he realizes that actually the scales are not equal. They're they're tipped in favor of the oppressors. That those who have power, those who have authority, those are the ones who are abusing their authority. The system, it was being abused by clever and powerful officials and the innocent were weeping and no one, no one, no one was caring for their tears. I wonder if at these proceedings, one of the judges or one of the clerks looked at these people who had been robbed or had been having... Their, their share taken away and just said, you know, this is just the law. 
I'm just doing my job. If you have a complaint, you can fill out this form and send it to this place and wait five days and then you be like, you should have read the terms of agreement so you know what we're getting into. I wonder if they said, sorry, there's nothing I can do. At every turn, Solomon sees the innocent have no advocate. And this is pain. Solomon laments that it is better to be already dead. Actually, no, no, no. It's better to not yet be born than to go through life witnessing the injustices of the world. And here's what Solomon is getting at. In the place of justice, when the, the scales are tipped in the direction of the oppressors, what we ought to do, it is better, it is more balanced, it is just to actually tip the scales in the direction of the innocent. That true justice, God's way, is to comfort those who are being oppressed. The only truly innocent people that Solomon talks about are those who have not yet been born. I couldn't help but think about the rampant problem that we have had in our country since the 1970s and how we do not privilege the rights of the unborn. I tried seven different ways to get around this in my study this week. As I was thinking, God, where is the injustice happening in our country? Where is the injustice? Where are those who, who have no advocate? And Solomon says it's better, actually, to be the unborn. Those that are on their way. Those who are innocent in the womb those who have not yet seen the world. We are in a rapid progression of digression in this world. You grow up, and all of a sudden your innocence fades. Isn't that true? But on a global scale, I, I consider the, the problems of governments. Now, all of us bemoan our political system at some extent, don't you? Like We all kind of look at what's happening in our election cycles, and we're like, good grief. Like, my goodness. But I look at the governmental systems of other countries who have dictators who are harshly ruling their people. And the cries of those people go where? Think about those who have experienced abuse in their life, who even in America have felt like there is no shot for justice for them. And Solomon says that justice, true justice, it's going to tip the scales in favor of the innocent. A cursory glance at scripture shows God's heart for the innocent. God's heart for living as an advocate for someone who is being oppressed. God says that his religion is one of caring for widows and orphans in distress. Jesus is almost annoying in the way that he spends his whole entire life caring for those who are on the margins of society and those who have been shut out and oppressed by society. His half-brother James writes in his epistle later in the Bible, he says that uh, in, in the church we should not oppress people because of their lack of means and we should not favor other people because of their provision of means. Clear in the heart of God there is this justice by which the innocent and the oppressed find relief. And... I think if Solomon was here today and we were to ask him, well, how, Solomon? You don't really give us an answer, but how do we bring justice to this world? 
I think if Solomon came to Indiana, he would look around and he would see the American political system. He might even be impressed. And he would see that one of our branches of, ju- of government even is the judicial system. And I think Solomon's wisdom would say there's no perfect system that you can overhaul to bring justice. There's even no one person who can walk in as a crusader and clear out Washington. I think what Solomon's getting at here, what he would say is this. How, how do you bring justice? How do you bring balance to your life as a just person? Comfort the crying. Be near to the brokenhearted. Put your arms around the ones who life has rolled over. I look out and see faces of people who do this, who have foster kids in their families, who go visit friends who have been wrongly accused for things in prison, who, who, who visit abortion clinics and are caring for people and moms. This is what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The Solomon would tell us you can't correct the wrongs that have been done. And though you didn't cause the wrongs that have been done, you can comfort those who have been wronged. Justice can be found when we are people who comfort one another. Uh, quite honestly, I'm, that's why I'm really, really happy that uh, Bethel Cares is an initiative that our campus is taking very seriously. and We're leading the way in our church. Um, cancer is one of those things, wouldn't you agree, that befalls us. It, it, disease, why do people get sick? There's this, there is this sense of injustice in health. And for us to be able to comfort one another and to put our arms around one another and say, this stinks but we're here with you, and we're crying with you, is a small part of the justice that brings balance to our own lives and brings balance to the lives of those around us. It's good. It's just. But then Solomon moves from the courthouse and seeing that the whole system that he's created is really broken, that the balances are unequal, They're tilted the wrong way, and he moves to the workplace, where surely the workplace, surely the economy, surely people in the marketplace are going to have more balance to their life. And look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Are you still with me? Did I thoroughly depress you with that talk of oppression? He says this. He says, all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Wow. That's a pretty big sweeping statement. All toil. All skill with which you work. Hey, hey, nurse at the hospital, Solomon says that you're working because you're envious of your neighbor. Hey, hey, hey guy on the, on the line at the steel mill, you're, you're working because of the envy of your neighbor. This is what Solomon's getting at. He went out in the marketplace and he saw people were busy. They were accomplishing much, but, but, but why? Because there was this insatiable appetite for more, to have and to be better than the person Next to me. Some people's competitive drive pushes them to an insane level of workaholism. Um, Some of us even here, like 40 hours is done between Monday and Tuesday. That's just a warm-up lap for us to get our overtime hours where we'll clock 30 to 40 more of those a week. And we say things like, well, I'm just really industrious. 
this. I'm just trying to be really wise. I'm trying to make a lot of money. I'm trying to get a, but, but, but really, I wonder if in the back of our minds, if we're honest with ourselves, there's this competitive spirit in our American, chasing the American dream where we say, well, Mr. Jones has a nicer house than I do. Mr. Jones just bought a new car, and Mr. Jones just put this in his backyard, and Mr. Jones has, and, and isn't it true that we chase the Joneses only to become the Joneses, to be exceeded by other Joneses, to chase more Joneses? <laughs> I mean, this is the problem of life, is that we, we have our, our, our priorities so out of whack Solomon calls this attitude, this evil, jealous desire for what other people has, he calls this is empty. He calls this evil. And God calls this evil. And I wonder if, if you don't see this in your own heart, I wonder if you look at the possessions of other people and you become a little bit envious and it drives you just to work a little bit harder. I wonder if um, one of your friends it's a boyfriend, and all of a sudden there's something in you that starts to mope a little bit because you want what she now has. Or, or maybe he gets the raise at work and you find yourself calculating what that comes out to, and you become a little bit envious. Maybe the boyfriend moves from a boyfriend to a fiancé, and it causes you to spiral out of control. Or They get married, and you find that you can't possibly be fully excited for them because it just highlights something in you that is lacking. Or even worse, even worse, here I think is the core of it. When someone has something that you want and it's taken away from them, do you feel a little bit vindicated? This is the evil that Solomon's getting at in our hearts. <laughs> He's saying, if you cannot participate in the joys of other people's successes, you have an evil, wicked heart. And here's how bad this gets in our society. You ready for some numbers? Statistics tell us that an average American household has $15,762 worth of consumer debt in their home. All of this is just what um, sociologists call retail therapy. The idea that when we're stressed out of our minds, we can just take out the plastic and swipe it and get more. It's been described as, as this idea of being conspicuous consumerism. Social media compounds this. Hey, look at my new car. Hey, look at my new house. Hey, don't you like my new outfit? Hey, look what I put my kids in. Hey, look what school my kids go to. Hey, do you like my new office? Don't you wish you had this view from my condo on my vacation? And all of a sudden, we it's been classically said, we... Spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. And Solomon says, the envy that you have for what your neighbor has, that is an out-of-balanced life. It's out-of-balanced. It's driven by competition. It's driven by envy. And in the workplace, Solomon saw this envious worker, but he also saw next to this envious worker someone totally different on the total opposite side of the, uh, the spectrum. Look at the next verse. I love this verse. This might become my life verse. I'm going to have this put on a coffee mug and drink from this every day of my life. If any of you has the ability to do that, please do this. Here's the, here's, here's the verse. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
that's a life verse to live by. Some of you are like in the pie in the sky, Psalms, like get Ecclesiastes 4, 6, or 4, 5 in your hearts. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is a person who's run the rat race of life and he's opted out. They're a conscientious objector to the economy of life. Uh, This is the person who sits by and watches idly as other people go off to work and other people go off to do things and says, well, that shift, it starts too early. It's not worth it for me to get up that early. They, They say things like, well, I just don't know what I'm good at. I just haven't found my calling yet. Or I just don't know if I'm, I'd rather do something else. All around them are little jobs that can be done to keep the house running or to put bread on the table, but they choose not to. And in the end, Solomon says laziness is the gravy train on the way to starvation and cannibalization. This person has folded their hands and has given up on life and has said, it's not worth it. I just want a little bit of rest. Don't I just deserve a little bit of rest? Life is so hard, I could just rest a little bit right now. And all of a sudden, there's no food, and it becomes the end of that person. One uh, commentator says it this way. I think this is really insightful. He says about this man, he says, he is the picture of complacency and unwitting self-destruction. For this comment on him points out a deeper damage than the wasting of just his capital. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. Eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his own self-respect. Solomon is essentially saying, Uh, One man is driven so hard to work and has nothing to show for it. And the other person is doing nothing to work and eats nothing and has nothing to show for it. And it's easy for us to just insert our political leanings right here. Like the conservative would look at this and say, well, you know, the workaholic isn't really as bad as the lazy person After all, doesn't the Bible say that if you don't work, you don't eat? So maybe a little bit of envy in my my job, workaholism, if you want to call it that, Dan, is not good, but at least it's better than the other guy. And then the liberal might look at this and say, I really think there's enough wealth to go around. Maybe even solve the problem of world hunger. Why must this man scratch for food? Surely he should pull his own weight, yes, but die of starvation? Where's the justice in that? Okay, now just, if you could, just play along with me because I'm curious. Did you think of either one of those extremes? None of you thought that. None of you. None of you thought, surely this man must work. And someone else was like, well, I mean, where's the justice? None of you. Okay. I'm going to go back and reevaluate my own heart. But here's the bigger picture. Solomon has set us up. This has all been a setup for us. Where he said, look at the man who works too hard. Look at the man who does not work at all. Neither one of them is right. Instead, Solomon is trying to usher in the the, the third middle way that is the way of balance. And he's going to say this. Look at verse 6. He says, better, again, better, is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. 
and a striving after wind. Better than some sort of political conservative way, some sort of politically liberal way, some sort of social experiment of this, the better way is to find God's way, which is the way of contentment. Contentment is the key that helps us move forward and have balance in our lives. Uh, Contentment is the key that allows us to balance the rhythms of work and the rhythms of rest. Jesus says, what good is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Solomon says, better is a handful of quietness and peace than than two hands full, stuck in the dirt, stuck digging and toiling and trying to amass as much as you possibly can with no quiet to balance it out. I think the principle here is this. um, This is a checkbook. Here's how it works. I don't even know. This is my deposit record. This is my checkbook. 001. Actually, it's a number I made them start at, so it didn't look like I didn't write checks. Never used this. I had to find it. This is a deposit record, it says, where you put the date, you put the description of what you spent and how much you spent, and you can, you can balance your checkbook. Who knew? Did you guys know about this? I think this is going to revolutionize the way we spend money. And uh, there's, there's my checks, and, and I, I think the checkbook is what Solomon's going after here. I think he's saying um, one side of this or another is your problem. Either you're spending too much time balancing your books or you're spending too much time carrying a balance. You're either the guy that is working so hard to amass this giant number over here or you're someone who is so foolish that you're just cutting checks left and right and they're bouncing. And Solomon says the third way, the better way, the way of balance is to be content. To so just say to God, I have enough. I have enough money, says the content man who works hard. I have enough rest, says the lazy person who does not work. It is better, Solomon says, for us to have one handful of contentment and one hand working open for what God would have for us. Which takes our American culture and kind of just kills it. I mean, doesn't it, at some level, where, where, where we don't have to have what they have. We don't have to progress down this pathway of success, whatever that looks like. Contentment, it rejects competition. It rejects laziness. It's what balances out our lives so that we can work without worrying. And we can rest without reeling. I once heard it said that God wants us to labor hard, but in the spirit of, 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 in the right spirit and with the right reasons. And listen, contentment does not mean that you don't work hard and you don't pay your bills on time and you don't act responsibly. Contentment simply means that in your heart, as the Lord provides, it's okay. That as your friends move up the ladders of success and get crazy raises and, and you find that your job is on the line, and you, you look at what's happening in everybody else's life and it's up and to the right and yours is kind of stagnant for 18 years that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That, that, that's our hand of quietness. That's our hand of contentment. I love what 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
I wonder how many of us here are striving and running over our families and running over our spouses and running over our kids and your kids haven't talked to you in seven weeks because you're just so busy at work. I wonder how many of us here at the same time are not working hard enough, staying home, sleeping in, letting other people just kind of take care of the odds and ends, abusing the system. The psalmist says, you want to balance in your life. Here's where balance comes from. Balance comes from contentment, from contentment. And Solomon's going to push us a little bit farther down the road on the issue of work and rest, particularly as it relates to family and friends. Um, I, I recently heard a story that I think makes this point. And I, wanna, I went online and I looked it up to make sure it was true before I brought it to you. Um, and I want to share this. There's a guy named Marcus Person. Marcus Person was just a software developer at that company that made that app Candy Crush. You've all played Candy Crush. And when you were busy being addicted to multi-whatever-they-were, I never really played it, so I'm sorry. But that thing, he was building this game called Minecraft. Anyone under the age of probably, what, 17? Is that the over-under? 17 probably has played Minecraft. Um, some of you in here are a lot older than that, and you play Minecraft. I know who you are. Marcus Pearson, it was, it's this incredibly popular game, wildly popular. And uh, this guy, is, he's just a, a really nice guy, single dude, and uh, one day coded this game. He sold it to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. Ultimate American success story, right? Rags to riches right here. Sitting in an office where everybody's playing Candy Crush, you make a, an app, you make a game, it's, it's fantastic, everybody plays it, and, and you sell it for a massive amount of money. Uh, he is worth now $1.23 uh, $1.34 billion. He has no debt. He has no job. He's retired. He has no obligations. He's a single man in his 30s who can go anywhere he wants, do anything he wants. He bought a $7 million home with cash. It has a whole entire wall of candy on it. Anyway, he flies in famous people to his home for his party. Like, anyone he wants to meet, he just flies them into his house. Like, that's, that's the level at which this guy's at. His name is, um, on, on Twitter, is Notch. That's like his code name or his, his username. And everybody uh, knows Notch. They, they watch him, and it's been this incredible success story. Well, a short while after getting everything, he started tweeting. And um, Notch's life kind of went under the microscope here for a little bit because here's what he tweeted out. He said, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And human interaction is impossible due to imbalance. August 30th, 2015. Three minutes later, he says, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Then he goes on to tweet just a few moments after that. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. This guy sounds a lot like Solomon, doesn't he? Like incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, the whole world at his disposal. 
And he says, I'm lost in the crowd. I don't have any drive. I really wish I had a wife. So many of us would look at his life and say, I want that. And he looks back at us, Notch does, and he says, no, you don't. You don't. We just read Solomon's assessment that it's better to have a handful of quiet than two hands full of toil. And I wonder if in Solomon's seeking relationships with his 700 wives and his 300 concubines, if there was this depth of relationship that he was missing, that that was causing him to feel isolated. And this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Look, look uh, at verse 8. He brings us to this point. He says that there's a man who is out in the field who is working incredibly hard. And he was someone who had no son, no brother. He had no other. He was a man all by himself working incredibly hard, amassing enormous amounts of wealth. Solomon doesn't tell us whether this guy was married, but if he was, he was neglecting his wife. He wasn't content. He just wanted more. He never wondered what would happen to his wealth. Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And if this man would have stopped to examine his life, he would have found that his wealth and his work were robbing him of relationships. There was no time to get married. There was no time to enjoy. There's no time for community. His life, though wealthy, though his life, though accomplished, was still lacking. It was still out of balance. Phil Riken writes this. He says, living and working for ourselves is one of the fastest ways to turn the American dream into a nightmare. And Ecclesiastes has taught us that work can be pleasure, but not if we pursue it for our own selfish purpose. And I think it's for this reason that Solomon says in verse 9, two are better than one. You just all say that with me? Two are better than one. If you're here and you're married, look at your spouse and say, I'm better because of you. Some of you really mean that. <clears throat> Some of you. And why are two better than one? Here's why. Because life, who knows this? Life will throw you off balance. Life has a way of throwing us curveballs. Like life will hit you. People will betray you. Your needs are greater than your individual ability to provide for yourself. And here's, here's the third balance that Solomon gives us. He says companionship, it chooses community over individuality. That if you look at your life and you are an individual with your own thing and no one else is around you and you've, you've isolated yourself from everyone else, your life is off the rails and balanced. Solomon says two, two, to go together, to go together, to, to have people in your life who know you. And notice his reasoning. He takes a cue from the ancient routes of people sojourning. They would sojourn across uh, the country in pairs. And here's why. Look at what he says. He says uh, they get a better re return for their, their toil. They can be more productive, get more done, be more profitable. They can walk together and if there's a, an injury or if they need to overcome something, they can help each other up. If they're um, traveling together and it's cold at night, they can keep each other warm. When you're in danger, together you can go to war. Solomon says it's better to be together because when you're working, when you're walking, when you're warming, when you're warring, it is better to have two than just one. It's like that old song. You remember this old song? It takes two, baby. 
It takes two. You remember that song? You're surprised I know that song? A little bit? It's okay. And I laugh every time I go to a wedding. Because this is our classic wedding passage, isn't it? I don't want you to raise your hand if you had this said at your wedding. It's okay. It, 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 is, it is okay to read this at a wedding. But um, this is often read at a wedding. Someone who has this crazy relative that they want to have be included in the service, somehow they're like, hey, just read Ecclesiastes. And they walk up there and two are better than one. And everyone at the wedding is like, amen. Because they have a good reward for their toil. And all of a sudden the wedding becomes like a business contract. As if like, oh, now you guys are actually going to get a good return out of life because you weren't doing that before. But I look at the, the overall setting of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. If we think about what's happening, Solomon is saying, there's no balance in life anywhere. There's no justice in the world. There's no contentment in the world. There's no companionship in the world. And so we stand at the altar, babe, and I do. I do to this world. And Solomon is not concerned here about two people getting married. You know that, right? Solomon is concerned here about a wider picture of community, a wider picture of companionship, a wider picture that says, hey, I know that I need you just as much as you need me. And sure, the highest form of companionship is marriage. But but Solomon says, he, he starts, he says, look at that one guy out in the field and he's all alone. That's no good. Two are better than one. And at the end of this, he's going to say, verse 12, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. I actually have a three-fold cord right here. This is um, actually one of our ushering ropes. And um, I know that these are broken all the time, so that must not be true. But um, you see, there's three, three cords here. And um, the strength that comes from this when you just take a rope and twist it around each other. I mean, you could, you could rip on this thing all day. I don't care if you're as strong as Hercules. I mean, this is a, this three strands makes it really, really strong. And um, two are better than one, and, and three is better than two. And, and this is why I love community in the church, because when, when we let the gospel be the thing that twists us together, that sort of makes us surround each other, there is this inherent godly strength when we live life together. I mean, you, you know you need people, right? There may be times in your life where it's so abundantly, God is so provided for you abundantly that you need people to come help rake in the dough. You're like, Dan, when does that happen? I don't know, but it could. Think of the business owners who have been blessed, who need help. Think of um, farmers who often hire people because they need help. But we also know that life has a way of tripping us up and kicking us down and we find ourselves on the side of the road in the pits and you need somebody to be there to just help you. And when you're tied together, there is strength. We also know that sometimes in the middle of the night we get depressed. In the middle of, of the dark seasons of the soul, we need people to be there to warm us with the gospel, to warm us with encouragement, to help us Stay the course, to, like Stephen prayed earlier, to, to help fan into faith, the flame of faith. And, and the cord of three strands is not easily broken. 
And you know that you need people to watch your back. My friends in the military call it um, watching your six. Um, I like that a lot. You think about the hands on a clock, it's kind of like behind you. And I wonder what Christians are walking through life with you watching your six. You know, going into battle with you. Being there for you. It's a different thing when you've got someone watching your back. When you have someone who you know is, the, is, is, is in the rope, is in there with you. And this is why I'm such an advocate for our students to be in community. Our students today face such an age of what we call crowded isolationism. It's this idea that you can have a million friends online, but not a single one of them knows you. And you can walk the halls in your school and say hi to a lot of people, but not many of them know what's going on at home. Friendship is going where we think it's going. It's not going deep, it's just going surface. And Solomon says that if you only have a bunch of Facebook friends, and no one truly knows who you are, if you're not fully known by someone and fully loved by them, in spite of all your imperfections, in spite of all your failures, in spite of all your baggage, if you don't have someone to be there with you, you're out of balance, you're liable to break and snap. This is why I love small groups. Because a small group is an environment where over time you get to meet together with the same people and talk about things at a, a deeper level in your life. And you can open up over time as you become, to be, become friends with these people and build community together. And all of a sudden, you've got a team of people who know you deeply and can encourage you deeply. And that's balance in your life. And finally, Solomon gives us one last one last area of balance. He says in verse 13, look at this with me shortly here. He says, Better was a poor wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. And Solomon has moved from the courthouse to the marketplace, to the area of relationships and friendships, and then he moves to leadership. And he says, in wisdom and leadership, there, there's people who grow up and they think that because they're old, they're wise. And may I kindly, on this side of youth, I hope I get to that side of youth, but on this side of youth, may I kindly and just delicately say, becoming older does not necessarily make you wiser. Guys, I know a lot of 70-year-olds who are really foolish people, don't you? Age is not equal to wisdom. Now sure, age that's been seasoned with reflection and insight, breeds wisdom. But how do you get that? You get that the way that this king decided he wasn't going to. Look at verse 13 again. He says, the problem with this king was that he no longer knew how to take advice. And as we walk through life together, as we have wise counselors in our lives, we grow in wisdom. And I want to put it this way. The fourth balance that we need in our life is that of humble teachability. Or, or maybe say it this way, heeding counsel, it demonstrates humility. To seek out and to submit ourselves to others who could be able to speak into our lives as trusted counselors. To accept the checks and balances of life. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, here's my last little prop for you. Uh, if you don't have anyone in your life who can act as a judge for you, 
act as a trusted counselor, who can say, hey, this is a good verdict. You, you may be someone who hasn't sought out counsel enough. You may be someone who isn't teachable. We want our leaders to be people who can receive counsel. I, I laughed at this real-life situation a couple weeks ago as it was reported. There is a political candidate who will remain nameless because you all know this person already. And when I put the quote on the screen, you'll know. Um, but they were asked, who advises this person on foreign policy decisions? Like, who is talking to you about foreign policy? And this is the quote that this person said. We throw it up there. He said, I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain and I've said a lot of things. Again, not political, just trying to show you how this works in the real world. And I think probably realizing the gaffe, this person went on to say, I know what I'm doing. I listen to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people at the proper time. I'll let you know who those people are. But my primary consultant is myself, and I have good instinct for this stuff. But better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Heeding counsel, it demonstrates wisdom and humility. And so all things being equal, when we practice justice for the oppressed, when we, when we practice contentment with our work and our rest, when we practice community with each other, when we, when we heed the counsel of other people, Solomon says this is a life that is put into balance. This is a life that brings wisdom. Friends, I would be remiss if I told you that if you don't know Jesus, you could do all four of these things. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you could right now go out and start helping the oppressed. You could right now um, jump into community. You could right now do all these things. But listen, there is a spirit enablement to all of these things in the Christian that lets us do these at a higher level. What Solomon is saying is that these are the ways that God would have us walk. And we remember Christ, who is the perfect example of all of these things. For he himself died in the place of us who were being oppressed by the power of sin. And we have Christ, our advocate, who gives us contentment, who gives us all things that we need in him. That when we come to him, he changes and reframes our priorities so that we might be able to work and worship him the way he created us to. We have in Christ this realization that he saved us not to a better version of our individual selves, but he saved us into his family. He, he saved us as the body of Christ into his family to be with each other. That if, if you're in Christ, you're with each other. We belong to one another, which is why communion is such a thing that we do together. And if we have Christ, we have the wisdom of God. Friends, you, you cannot live the balanced life apart from a relationship with Jesus. You can try. You can get better. But he will ultimately be the only one who can put your life into balance. And so the question is this. Have you centered your life on a relationship with Jesus where he gives you balance? Because all things being equal, the way of Christ is always better. Would you pray with me? Father.
grateful for this time where we 